0: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. So today is supposed to be a big celebration on this podcast because we're celebrating 800 episodes. And it's huge, you know, it's something that I really wanted to mark. And we do have a whole episode planned for you, but I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that my heart is completely shattered right now. And I know that many of you have been watching what's been happening in Israel and the absolute massacre and torture. It's something I, I just don't have words for, but um, I have not slept. It actually started, we were at a friend's house for Shabbat dinner. And um, these are our very good friends who happened to also be Israeli. And they got a call that there were rocket attacks. And we've seen that before. And we went to turn on the news and we, we saw something we hadn't seen before, which is uh, terrorists going into people's homes. And we knew this was going to escalate and we knew that this was something unprecedented. And, um, I'm, I'm doing everything in my power not to break into tears right now so that I can be coherent. So bear with me. But, um, I have family there and, um, I have friends there and I have never seen anything like this. Um, there are hundreds of women that were raped. Uh, this terrorist organization is a, vile, misogynistic, uh, despicable terrorist organization, Hamas, and Iran has already came out to say that they were planning this with them, and we know what has been happening in Iran and the torture of women, so we know uh what is going on with Hamas. Um Hamas is, uh, it's like the Taliban, it's like ISIS, and it's so horrifying. They have kidnapped children, they have kidnapped Elderly, they slaughtered 700 people, murdered, and in addition to holding uh, over 150 or 200 people hostage, and it's just the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my lifetime, and uh, the death toll is climbing, and they, they think it's going to be over a thousand or more, and several thousand people have been uh, wounded, so um, it is absolutely horrific. Last night we went to a uh, prayer service, and uh, one thing that was just so beautiful um, is that in this prayer service where we stood with about a thousand Jewish people in the Los Angeles community, not one person got up there and talked about hatred for any person. Nobody got up there and said a word about hate for anyone. We talked about goodness. We talked about love. We talked about peace and we talked about the Jewish people. And I will tell you that something Rabbi Farkas of the LA Jewish Federation said that was just so moving. He said, what the Egyptians didn't know about us, what the Romans didn't know about us, what the Greeks didn't know about us, what these terrorists don't know about us is that the Jewish people love each other so much and all around the world. It doesn't matter where we are. Our hearts are with each other. And the reason we have survived the Holocaust and the reason we will survive this and the reason we continue to survive is because there is a deep, deep love for life. There's a deep unity. And because our entire purpose of the Jewish faith is to be a light unto the world. And I lived in Israel. And when you walk that land, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land where Jesus walked, the land of King David, it is so palpable. I became a better person because of those years in Israel. I learned that we are each a masterpiece, a piece of the master. I learned what it means to be the best version of myself. And I know that kind of absolute goodness and love will always, always conquer hate. So I just want to also say, speaking of love, how much I love you guys. I was posting nonstop over the weekend. I did not get one DM of hate. I only got support from you guys. That is the most beautiful thing. May God shield you and protect you. May he protect all of our children. May everyone be free of terrorism. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are extraordinary. You know, so often people say, oh, people on the internet are like this or like that. And I'm like, you don't know my people. This is the most loving, conscious gorgeous group of humans and I, I just adore you and I appreciate you. Thank you for letting me share some of that. I know it's really, really hard to hear and it's uh, really awful and there are no words. And uh, we do have a show that was prepared for you by my amazing producer with clips of some of our favorite moments of the last 800 episodes. And you know, the number eight is infinity. And the idea is that we have an endless capacity for goodness. And so maybe there's something to this 800 that we're really looking at, like how we can reach into what is beyond, right? What is beyond the physical. And when you go beyond the physical, all there is is love. All there is is higher consciousness. So I just want to say thank you I love you. I appreciate you. And um, we're going to do a giveaway for these 800 episodes. So come to my Instagram so you can hear more about that. But essentially, I'm going to be giving away tons of really amazing things just to celebrate eight of you, to celebrate the 800th episode. We'll pick eight of you and I'll be giving you eight of my favorite things in a bundle and they will be awesome and juicy and Wonderful, because I really want to celebrate you. And and all you have to do to enter is go to my Instagram, and you'll find a post about it. It'll give you the details, but it'll tell you to review the show and to share about the show on your Instagram. And uh, if you want to share about the show, and then just you know post something congratulating us on 800 episodes, or share about the show and tag me, and just post about your favorite episode. Just review the show and then share about it. And if you want to let us know that you entered, go to my Instagram, and you'll see how to enter and it means a lot to me. So we're going to share a bunch of different clips. I want to start out by sharing this clip from Matthew McConaughey. It's just an awesome story. And I know you've probably heard some version of it, but it's really cool to hear it from him himself. So take a listen.
1: So I go to the top of the high with my girlfriend this one Thursday night. And the reason I go to the high is the bartender there is in my film class and he'll give me free drinks. He brings me over, if I could talk. He goes, hey, there's a guy at the end of the bar. He's in town producing a film. Let me introduce you. Introduce him. His name is Don Phillips. Four hours later, Don Phillips and I have had quite a few Vicodonics. and are <laughs> getting kicked out because we're loud and obnoxious. I'm taking a cab home to my house. Don's with me. He's going to drop me off. We're talking. Get along great. On the ride home, he says, like, you ever done the thing?" And I said, yeah, you know, I was in commercial and I was in the background of a middle light commercial for that that, that long. He's like, well. There's this uh, script called Days of a movie of down produced, and you might be right for this small part. Come to this address tomorrow morning, pick it up. I'll have a, I'll have the scenes written for you. Well, I go down the next morning, I pick up the script. There's a handwritten note from Don, and these three scenes marked. Well, I go home and work on these three scenes for two weeks. I come back and I read, and I get the part. So I've got the part, and I'm scheduled to work in three scenes. Well, you have to do what's called a makeup and wardrobe test on a set. The movie's already shooting. And what it means is you go to the set while they're already shooting another scene. You go through makeup and wardrobe. You come out, the director looks you up and down. Oh, I like this, change this, da 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 da. But I was not scheduled to work this night that I do the makeup wardrobe test. And we're shooting at the top notch drive through to burger uh stand and this is a scene in the movie. I walk out on the street, Richard Link later takes a break in the middle of the shooting, comes over, looks me up and down, laughs, Oh, this is Wooderson. this is great, da da, da da da. And all of a sudden he starts tickling his chin. And he goes, Say you know, I figure Wooderson's the type of guy who's been with the typical, typical objects. You know, cheerleaders and such. You think, you think Wooderson would be interested in the redheaded intellectual? I'm like, oh yeah, man. Wooderson likes all kind of girls. He goes, well, Marissa Rabisi's playing the role of Cynthia, the redheaded intellectual. And she's over here in the car with her nerdy friends. And maybe, I don't know, you think Wooderson might, you know, pull up and try and pick her up. I'm like, give me 30 minutes. Take a walk with myself. And I started going, who's my man? Who's Wooderson? Because there's nothing written here. And I've been invited to improvise this scene. Next thing I know, I'm in the car with the lavalier mic and about to shoot my first scene in a movie I've ever shot. And there's not a word of dialogue written. So I'm going over in my head, who's my man? Who's Wooderson? What is Wooderson about? And in my head, I say, Wooderson is about my car. Yes, I'm in a 70, my 70 Chevelle.
2: I got that. There's (laughs) one.
1: And I said, Wooderson's about getting out. Oh, oh, Slater's riding shotgun. He's always got a nice doobie rolled up. Then I go, Wooderson's about rock and roll. I said, oh, I got Ted Dugia's stranglehold in the eight track rocking right now. I got three. And all of a sudden, I hear action. And as I hear action in my mind, I look up and I go, and there's Cynthia, the redhead intellectual I'm going to go pick up. And the fourth thing Wooderson's about is picking up chicks, put it in drive said my mind, I got three out of four going to get the fourth. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> and those were the three affirmations for the three things that my character did have on the way to go get his fourth and the very first words I ever said on film.
0: The next clip is another epic story from my friend Sherry Salata about what happened to her right before she started working as the executive producer of the Oprah Winfrey show and eventually became co-president
3: of Harpo and own. This always blows my mind. Take a listen. So I was broke and I guess I was 34 or 35. And I had gone out as an agency pro- advertising agency producer. I was freelancing. <laughs> and it turns out I really suck at freelancing when you have to dial for dollars. Hello, will you hire me for money? I'd be like, no. Okay, don't call me back then. <laughs> so I was completely broke. I don't want to tell my parents again that I'm out of money. And I'm out of money and I get a chance through another friend to interview for a big, huge senior producer position at XYZ fancy schmancy advertising agency. And I think I'm going to make 75 grand, like a queen salary. I'm going to make 75 grand with all the benefits. I'm finally going to be able to pull myself out of this morass I'm feeling And I do the interview, the guy all but hires me in the room, tells me to go home and wait for the call. And five days later, after many celebrations, premature turns out, uh, I got a letter from the HR department said they weren't hiring. Oh, God. So it was it. It was it. My hands were open. My hair was dirty. I was laying around in sweatpants. Probably I had McDonald's wrappers around me. And I was just like, I don't even know what a dream is then. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm a big failure. This is never going to work out. And that is when I get a voicemail saying, this is so-and-so at the Oprah Winfrey Show. We were cleaning out an old closet and found your resume. Are you available to come into freelance? And that's how I got the job. And it was only years later when I realized without that beautiful no, I never would have had this rocket ride this once in a lifetime journey and then i began to look at all of us in conversations with nancy and my other friends and other people i'm like oh my gosh i can look at your life and and tell you what your beautiful nose were yeah. because those are the passageway wow. and now i want to share a beautiful metaphor
0: from one of my mentors seth godin i really love how he puts imposter syndrome into a new perspective so next time we're feeling unsure of our capabilities we can just set that fear aside and dive in
2: when you're swimming in the swim team, the coach has plenty to say about your flutter kick, plenty to say about how you're breathing, et cetera. Three months later, you got your summer job and a kid starts drowning four feet in front of you. Do you say, well, I'm not the most qualified lifeguard. Surely there's someone better than me to do this. No, because you are four feet away. You jump in the water. And when you jump in the water and you go to save that kid, did you do the perfect crossbody carry? Did you do the, the mouth-to-mouth in a way that was beyond reproach? Of course not. But the kid's okay. You saved the kid's life. And we should not spend our days worrying about our flutter kick when there's someone we can save. And if you're there for other people, not to hustle, not to figure out how to, you know, make enough money that you can retire, but there because you're actually going to help somebody get to where they're going, that's a generous act. It's not about you. It's about them. And that seems to me to make it a lot easier to deal with the feelings of shame that arise. It's like, okay, fine, but that person's not dead. Okay, fine, but that person moved forward. So yeah, I've made countless mistakes, mostly errors of omission, things I should have done, things I should have said, things I should have led, but I, all I can do is try to help the next person.
0: Okay, if you still need some convincing that your gifts can save a life, then take a listen to this powerful message from Daniel Ping.
1: If you have something, that you think benefits the world, I think you have a moral obligation to try to bring it to oh, more people. that's good. If you have something that's so extraordinary, a solution, uh, an idea, a piece of software, a design that is going to make a material difference in people's lives, I'm sorry, you don't have the luxury of sitting around waiting for people to come and knock on your door. You've got to go out and tell people about oh it. God. Not only for your own economic... Solvency, but I actually think you have a moral obligation to the planet to tell us about it if it's that great.
0: So this next piece is from someone who inspires me every day, the amazing Amy Purdy. Whenever someone tells me why their dream is impossible, I always direct them to the story because it gives me goosebumps.
4: I snowboarded and I knew I loved snowboarding. I really loved it. I was passionate about it. And I thought this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life, not necessarily as a career, but just I knew it would be a part of my life. It was a lifestyle for me. So. When I was sitting in the hospital and found out that I was losing both of my legs, my first question was, can I snowboard again? When can I snowboard again? And the doctors would say, we have no idea. Like we don't know if you can snowboard or even walk uh, without a cane on two prosthetic legs. We don't really know what to tell you, but you know, and then I, at one point I started calling all these adaptive ski schools and they said, well, you should, you should not wear your prosthetics. Just take your legs off and sit in a mono ski. And I remember just thinking, I want to use my legs. Like, I want to figure this out. So maybe maybe the reason nobody can tell me anything positive about this is nobody's done it. But maybe nobody's done it is because they're being told that they can't do it. And so maybe I need to just get out there and try. And so that's what I did. I mean, I I then just took literally baby steps. Like, it took months for me which isn't that long, but I'll tell you, it took months for me to get comfortable walking in my prosthetics. And then I thought, I'm going to get on my snowboard. I had never missed a season of snowboarding before and I wasn't about to. So it was about seven months after losing my legs, I stood up on my snowboard in my prosthetics for the first time. And I realized how complicated it was. I fell, my legs came off, my snowboard came off, like my legs came off with my snowboard, you know, flew down the mountain, And looking back, I think that was actually the beginning of my Olympic journey, which is so crazy because you can easily sit there and say, well, this is impossible. And I did. Part of me did say, well, this is impossible. This is why you don't see double leg amputee snowboarders every day on the mountain, because this is really hard. And my feet don't move the right way. And my legs don't even stay onto my body. And how the heck am I going to do this? And I'll tell you, at this time, I didn't have this vision of becoming an Olympic snowboarder. I didn't have this vision of you know, how far I would necessarily go with it. I just knew that I loved it and I knew that I wanted to figure it out for myself. And so I went on this mission trying to do that. I was working on different legs. I actually put different pieces together to create a pair of feet that I could snowboard in. And once I was able to snowboard in those feet, and keep my legs attached to my body. Uh, That's around the time that I met my husband and we were dating and he had this kind of philanthropic background uh, where his mom works with different nonprofits. And she really inspired us to start a nonprofit organization to help other people with disabilities learn to snowboard. And then through that, we got it into the Paralympics. And then I think, you know, and going on to win Olympic medals and stuff, I feel like when I look back at it, I've always been drawn to finding a way, just finding a way, you know, and if it doesn't exist, create it. And I know that sounds like, you know, that's, that's harder to do than what I just said, but I know that that's been my drive. Like, I I think I actually motivated by challenge because every time I'm presented with one, I'm on a mission to figure it out. And I've always been on a mission to live my best life. And When I lost my legs in the first place, I remember the doctor saying, you're more likely to be hit by lightning than to get meningococcal meningitis and survive. And so that did something to me where I thought, well, then anything's possible. So you're saying anything's possible in a bad way and anything's possible then in a good way. Like there are no barriers. Anything can happen. And I also feel like because I was so close to death, I was so grateful. To be alive and it, and it gave me a different perspective. How do I want to live the rest of my life? And realizing how short of a time we have here. And I have a kidney transplant and I'll tell you that gave me a sense and a quality of the way it wanted to live my life. And so these are very unique experiences that I've had that gave me a perspective that I wanted to live my best life, see what the possibilities are and do everything I can do while I'm here.
0: And now I want to share a special moment from my conversation with Dr. Edith Eager. I think especially in this time, her words are so needed. She is such a gift to this world, and it's such an honor to be in her presence. You know, you've said the word God eight mm-hmm. times maybe already, maybe more. <laughs> I
5: love my God, Stinkerbell, the free spirit. I'd be poor, you know, telling me there was God in Auschwitz.
4: Right.
0: That's what I was going to ask you, because it's so easy for people to say, no way, no way. So how do you have that? Grant was with me,
5: changing the hatred into pity, feeling sorry for the God. The dead were wearing that uniform, throwing children in a gas chamber, so I can call Auschwitz what you call many things an opportunity. It was an opportunity for an opportunity, for an opportunity to develop that happiness doesn't come from the outside, that no one makes me happy. I developed my inner resources, and the more I suffered, the stronger I became. You turn tragedy into an opportunity, into a victory. If I would hate I would still be a prisoner. Why give Hitler medal inch? So op- opportunity for an opportunity, not recovery, but discovery that I have strength, whether I'm going to respond or react. When you react, you don't think. I tell children to take that movie called The Karate Kid. <laughs> because the best power is brain power. Yeah, so what you think you create, that's very important. And that's what you're saying. And anger, while why,
0: why you are angry, you linked up because you allowed somebody to get to you. Here's another clip from another amazing person who's just magnificent, Priyanka Chopra. I was so moved by what she said about what women can do to support other women. Even the smallest gesture can really make a difference. I wanted to give you a moment to speak specifically to women about this because there's so much of this like apologizing and like, I'll just kind of dim it down. And I think this idea of shame, which we talked about before, it comes up for, it's like, oh, I don't want to seem arrogant or I don't want to like myself too much. What do you want to say to women who are constantly like, I like your outfit. It's okay. It's fine. It's th- There's so much of that. And I don't think that that's being in our best self. What do you think about that?
6: I think that I would love to tell your female listeners to think about something in a different way, okay? And even guys, for that matter. For eons, society has decided... What women should do when women should do it right like women at this point should have a job you should now have a boyfriend you should have moved out at this point you should have a child at this point you should oh my gosh you're going to be menopausing soon so you should' be settled in and now you're a grandmother you can't date you know like all of these things that have been decided for women which no one has decided for men like they do whatever they want whenever they want however they want right and in, in fact it's actually said that oh my gosh he said him you know he 's such a confident guy he lives life on his own terms. But when it comes to a girl, we've been taught that, you know, we should be judged at every moment. So much so it's so deeply ingrained in our culture, in the world that women do it to women too, and we don't realize it. And again, it's because there were so few opportunities for women, right? We were always told that you have to elbow out the other one to get the job because the best one is going to get the job. The most, the best girl is going to get the guy because, I mean, lo and behold, two girls couldn't get a guy. You know, um, all of those really messed up thoughts that have been subliminally sort of sprinkled, normalized into society, we have to fight that norm. Our generation of girls has to change it so that the next generation doesn't inherit these problems. You know, we create sisterhood. And I'm so excited, actually, to be with a generation of women that are now creating opportunities for himself. Like the Me Too movement, for example, um, was such an uh, example, great example of the fact that, you know, we've, we gave each other courage. And like that, I think as women, instead of doing the same thing that we've been taught, like, to be the most popular one in the school, you have to step on the shoulders of everyone else. No, we are going to be so successful as, as a community, as a world, if we support our women and if women give each other, you know, encouragement. So next time you see a, another girl trying to do her best and, you know, at her job or at her life, just appreciate her. That's all it takes. Just appreciate her and say, you know what? You did so great today. You look amazing today. That dress is freaking awesome. Just that. It just makes such a difference to create a sense of positivity instead of the negativity that we've been taught that we should have against each other. It's so toxic and noxious.
0: The next story is from my dear friend Rachel Platten, and it's such a beautiful lesson about showing up with your heart and trusting that the universe will take you where you're meant to be.
7: I literally wrote 5,000 songs. Over oh my the God. years, I stopped touring. I moved to LA. My husband was in New York. It was very hard. I was 30 at this time. My friends were getting married. And I mean, I was married. My friends were having babies and moving on their lives and buying houses. And I was buying a van and buying like production. And it was just hard for my family around me to understand what, I, what are you doing? This isn't working. But I had, I just knew I just had this feeling and I kept writing. I kept writing. And finally I wrote fight song and. Still, even to this day, de- even then, no one was like, I was 31 at the time. No, all the labels had rejected me so many times. So no one heard that song and they were like, yo, you're going to be a star. People were just like, that's a good song. But even when I had the fire that you guys hear now and are like, that's invincible, still people didn't believe in me. And I had to prove it again. And I had that song for two years sitting there before people before you guys heard it because no one would take a chance and I knew though and I went and took that song and I played around at living rooms again I went back to square one I played fight song for house concerts and I saw and I played it in hospitals I did a lot of charity work too during this whole time and um, I saw that it was changing people's lives and I had stand by you at the time too and I just saw that it was changing people's lives and making a real impact and that is what kept me going you know even after all the rejection I just was like I don't care one I'm making a difference. And finally, after two years of that, someone by chance, and by the way, right before my big break, I had a massive spiritual awakening of surrender, of like, I am holding this dream way too tight. I am gripping it. I am strangling the life out of it. I need it to happen so badly. I'm not even giving it room to breathe. Like The universe might be trying to send me things, and I am so nervous and so scared that I'm pushing him away. And I realized all this. So I just fell to my knees one night and I was like, God, I don't know what else you want from me. I have made the music that I think will heal millions of people. I have driven around the country. I have bled for this. I have done everything. But if it's not meant to be, I accept it. If I'm just supposed to play in hospitals, that's okay. And it was, I mean, it was like, I was sobbing. It was horrible. I cried thinking about it because it was just this feeling of like, okay, maybe my dreams that I've felt for years are not meant to happen. And I just trust you, God. And I just put it in the universe's hands and God's hands. And I woke up the next morning and I was like, I'll never be so ego driven about this again. You know, if like, who am I to say that it's not enough to play in hospital rooms and and heal people? Why does my ego need to be so much bigger? And sure enough, two weeks later, it got heard by a radio station in Baltimore. And he the the production manager of the station just was like played it for his sister who had breast cancer, and she sobbed and finally it got the like explosion that I knew it could have from this one man believing it, this one woman who had breast cancer saying to her brother, like "Please put that on the radio like that's healing me, please let other women or other people have cancer. other people in general have this power, and oh it was so beautiful and within Weeks it shazammed to number one. Two months after that I was on stage at the Radio Disney Awards. Three months after that, I was on stage with Taylor Swift. Everything changed. It was number one. It was a wild, wild ride. So that's that's the discovery story. Woo!
0: I want to share a piece now from Jason Moraz that really shows how happiness is not about having a bigger or fancier life, but it's about being who you are.
8: That was my goal. When I quit college shortly thereafter, and I started focusing on just my music, I worked as a janitor. I worked for the post office because my dad got me a gig there. Um, I worked at a tobacco shop. I worked a lot of different odd jobs, all knowing that one day I'm gonna be a musician, and I'm not gonna have this traditional day job. When I got to the coffee shops three, four years later, and I'm working in the coffee shop, playing music a couple of nights a week, I had made it. That to me was the finish line. Mm. I said, oh, my God, I don't have a day job. This is my gig. All I have to do now is book enough gigs to to pay my bills. And so I would work two, three, four coffee shops a week until I was really doing enough business at one or two coffee shops only that I didn't have to bounce around the city so much, you know? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't Madison Square Garden or anything like that. That didn't matter. What mattered to me was me and music, we are, we are intimately thriving. We're intimately connected. We are doing what we were meant to do. And I didn't have any expectation or even dream beyond that coffee shop stage. Mm-hmm. I never did. Everything that's happened since then has been this freak bonus. To the dream.
9: Yeah.
8: It really has. And I think that that is credit to those influencers I met in that Vegas hotel room Bill Silva and Marty Diamond. Bill Silva became my manager and he managed me for 18 years. Mm -hmm. And Marty Diamond was my booking agent for just as long. And these guys, once I was really established in the coffee shop, they were able to take that and help me take that to the next level.
9: Mm -hmm.
8: But in my mind, I was already where I wanted to be. Yeah. I never needed to go any further because the music is the reward and being challenged to, to write new songs for the stage. That's, that's the work mm-hmm. and having something to say that's meaningful. That's the work The getting around from city to city and touring and the venues getting bigger and all that, that's the music business basically just going bananas and that's managers and agents and lawyers doing all of that stuff. Yeah that wasn't really who I am. Yeah. So I was able to still go through that and go through those motions and play all those different venues because really they were no different than the coffee shops. I didn't have to believe anything different about myself to play Royal Albert Hall versus Java Joe's coffee shop. I just had to still do the work, be a great performer, write good songs, etc. And in the back of my mind, I always thought, All of this could go away one day. I've seen careers rise and fall. I'm not going to believe that I'm supposed to be in these big, big, big venues my whole life. Because at any point, it could go away, and I'm going to have to go back to that coffee shop. Yeah. And I actually never stopped going to those coffee shops. So when, mm. the, when the tour would end, I would go back to those coffee shops and keep playing my coffee shop shows. Yeah. Or when I had new music that I was working on, I'd go to the coffee shop first and I'd test the songs out there. Yeah. So that really helped me not change mm. because the real church, the real garden of songwriting and, and entertaining for me was the little coffee shop. That was really where the small audience doesn't have room for your big ego, you know? They want to hear the song. They want to see who you are. And I think that really helped me stay who I am.
0: Another one of my favorite stories told is from the one and only Jenna Fisher. I always get a kick out of what she did when she auditioned for The Office. Take a listen.
10: But then things, you know, started happening. Like I heard that Greg Daniels said no names. Mm. Name actors. I need people I don't recognize because I want people to believe that these are real people in an office. That's and I was amazing. Like, okay, I respect that. Yeah. And then my instructions from the casting director were: don't come in all glammed up, don't come in all pretty, and like the way they normally would want you to come in right, for a role, right. which is you're a third grade teacher, but also maybe a prostitute, <laughs> you know? Um, because your boobs are hanging out of your top, oh, and you have way too much makeup, right? On, right. right. So she was like, no, real person, look like a real person. And then she also said, and don't come in and do a bunch of shtick. Dare to bore me with your audition. That was the line she drew. Wow. God, that's amazing. And so I thought, I will take your challenge. And so I wore an outfit that I wore to my day jobs, which was some ill-fitting pants, very sensible shoes. Something I would never wear to an audition, a button-down shirt, and I let my hair dry naturally into a kind of kinky frizz, and I put it back in a clip, and I did not wear any makeup because that's what I looked like when I answered phones for the many, many years that I answered phones personally. Because nobody gets dressed up to answer the phone Oh my God, just the
0: exercise of going through this audition is like, it's so counterintuitive to everything. Everyone's always trying to earn everything and prove themselves. And you had to let, you were literally given the assignment of like, just show up. Just, just
7: just be there.
10: You have to be enough. You have to just show up. And so when I got those instructions and I knew that that was kind of their intention, I thought, I'm going to do it. And so when I walked in, I thought, if they really mean it, then I'm the person for this role. Oh, my God. But if they don't mean what they're saying, then I'm not the person for this role because this is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um. So it wasn't like I walked in thinking, like, I'm going to get it. It was a little bit like if they're making the show that I want them to make, yeah, which is what they're that. saying they're going to make, <laughs> yeah. then I'm going to show up for it. And then I think I'm right for the role. So how
0: did you do the audition if you were supposed to, like literally dare to bore her.
10: Well, I, I tried to imagine this person in an office who this wasn't her dream to answer phones. I've been there, you yeah, know, yeah. Um. when I would work in offices and answer phones, I wanted to speak to people as little as possible. <laughs> I didn't want to go to lunch. I didn't want people to come by and ask me how my weekend oh, was. Right. I just wanted to get through the day and go home and then live the life that I wanted to live. Not, you know, I was not fall in love with the cutest coworker you've ever had. No. Have a baby? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I just wanted to do the job, get my paycheck and head out. Right. So I kind of was like, I can relate to that aspect of this character. And so I imagined if I was at, I like imagine one of my jobs that I had answering phones. If my boss came up to me and said, we're going to start doing a documentary of our office life, I would imagine I would be so annoyed. Right. And I would want to be on camera as little as possible, and I would not want to help him out. Right. But my job depends on me being pleasant and polite. So I would have to ride that line. So these were all of my My thoughts about like how how I behave. (laughs) And so when they asked me questions, one of my auditions was an actual audition scene. So I started with that. And that was easy because there's material there, you know. And what I didn't do was try to show off in the material or add funny lines. I just did the material. And then they sat me down and they did an interview, a mock interview. And the first question was, do you like being a receptionist? (laughs) And the way I played it was to say nothing for a very long time, to think about it, and decide that I would tell the truth, but that's all. So I just said, no. (laughs) And then I did not elaborate. Right. And they loved it. They loved it. They started laughing really hard. Yeah, exactly. Right. But just very politely say no. Right. But not explain why. And I just, my take on Pam was that it was more interesting to watch her not say everything she wanted to say than to hear her say everything. Oh, it's so
0: brilliant. It was so funny. So, so just true. watching me
10: decide not to say everything I wanted about Michael, but instead <laughs> then say something like very neutral, you know, like right. that is like the essence of her to me. Yep. And so that was my take on her in the audition and they really loved it. And And I did feel like when I left, I felt like I'd really nailed it. And that felt like, and still feels like the role... That when I was back in St. Louis Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I don't know what else I could ever be. I am an actor. I'm an actor. It feels like I was being propelled toward that thing. Like that does feel like a role that was for me. Oh yeah. That was mine and it was meant for me. And, um, and I don't feel that way about every acting role, but from time to time, I feel a real ownership over a part. No doubt. And that's one of them. And
0: now you're going to hear this incredible moment from Brian Grazer. And let me just tell you, it's definitely not a conventional way of anybody sharing.
11: For the 18 months, I did every day reach out to meet somebody. And that was, you know, central or principal in the business of making movies or television shows. Mm -hmm. And I found that almost, actually, every person agreed except one person. Wow. Um, And what I learned out of it was... By saying I do not want a job was a very ins- essential ingredient Yeah, that you want to meet somebody. You're saying in a very short way, I have researched you or your boss. Um, often I was always talking to the assistants. I'd research <laughs> the bosses thoroughly. And people like when you do research and people that are accomplished like to talk yep. if you are informed. If you research them and you're kind and generous and smart and have smart eyes, then people want to open up and they want to share their journey. So I realized early on these special ingredients of, I didn't realize this until later about eye contact, but by being attentive and informed and inadvertently giving the person you're meeting something to. If you're informed enough, they get to grow along with you. So it's win-win. Yeah. If you're trying to meet somebody for a transaction itself, it's not a win-win. It's a win-lose. And I found that I wasn't a fully really outgoing kid. I'm outgoing now, but what gave me confidence is that I did look myself in the mirror and, you know, I was an imperfect person, but I was really conscientious about this win-win. I thought, Be informed, create the best date for them too. Yeah. And that fortified my sense of confidence and sense of self. Mm -hmm. It made the journey really valuable on multiple levels without saying, Hey, let me put my hand in your pocket. Right. So you gain so much professionally, by the way, by not doing that right away. Yep. So that's what those experiences did for me. And they gave me a lot of confidence. So now. I get fired from Warner Brothers and I get a really crappy job about a year later. And then it's a long story, but I was able to produce some movies for TV when I was 24 and they got very high ratings. And so I was lucky, but it was really a function of that opportunity meets preparation. So that all that ambition kind of worked and funneled into those ingredients. And so therefore... These movies are TV, incredibly successful, and I got offered a million jobs. I ended up going to Paramount Studios, and I want to continue this journey of meeting people. So now I have an office on the third floor of the director's building, and I look at it, and I, I think, I haven't met a new person today, and I see Ron Howard, mm-hmm. an American icon, star mm-hmm. of Happy Days, Richie Cunningham. You know, I don't judge that. I just think that guy would be interesting to meet. So I yell out my window, like <laughs> this quad area, and it terrified him that some guy was yelling. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, Cause, he's kind of shy. And then so he ran, ducked away. Like he, you know, he just ran away, ran away. From the guy that was yelling at him. And I then called his office and said, I was the guy yelling you know, like, out the window. And I'm a young guy like Ron. I'm telling his assistant Louisa. And then he gets on the phone and. He agrees to meet with me, and that was the beginning of a 40-year partnership.
0: All right, the next piece is guaranteed to fire you up. It's from Barbara Corcoran about the one thing her ex-husband said to her that ultimately set her up for success.
12: He uh, fell in love with my secretary, Tina. I was 30. She was 23, 22. Uh, He was 10 years older than I. I was raising his three children. We had moved in together. We were living together for about six years. We owned the business for seven years. His three daughters, surprise, I have three daughters, Oh, moved in with us. And then one night when I was making the pasta for dinner, he came in and just announced he was marrying my secretary. It was seemed like a joke at first. It wasn't a joke. He told me to take my time moving out. I took about a minute, ran off of my toothbrush right out of there, ego at stake. And moved in with my best friend, my only friend, Kathy Gilson on the East 79th Street. She allowed me to move in on her couch. But anyway, I worked that business, continued with Ray. They got married in three months flat. Oh, but my. it was very hard for me because they now shared the office that I used to share. And I used to look through the glass to see them giggling and touching hands. And it was just a heartbreaker. But anyway, I put up with it for about a month because I was too much of a coward to do anything about it. And I didn't even have my confidence. But after about a year... I announced that we were ending the business and how we were going to chop the business in half. You pick the best salesperson, I picked the next. You picked that, boom, boom, boom. Like in seven, eight minutes, I think the company was divided. Uh, I moved out, rented a space three floors above from the same landlord that same day, thank God. And on Monday, we were in business as a new company. I told my agents my seven out of the 14 in the foyer and I said we're moving on Monday oh we are where are we moving it's a surprise (laughs) because I didn't know where we were moving (laughs) in those days you could really pull out a lot pretty fast and we were moved in on Monday with the boxes with ribbons on I moved everybody out that weekend and I had a lovely little note welcome to the Corcoran group and I knew I had a name at the group because I knew I was going to need the help of every single person there if I was going to succeed there was just no way I I didn't have Ray. I kind of felt like I I didn't have an anchor, you know. But interestingly enough, those salespeople became my Uh, major anchors very dedicated Uh, we became a tight-knit little company we ran hard and that was the nucleus that built the giant company that I sold like 22 years later
0: yeah unbelievable you should be I'm sure that every single day you're being told how incredible it is but I hope that you stop Uh to be so proud of yourself and can you tell
12: them what he said to you on that day oh thank you for reminding me that was the insurance policy for life that would guarantee my success I I should write him a thank you to but when I was leaving that friday after i collected my people he said oh barbara <laughs> i remember i sensing i shouldn't turn around cuz i was going out the door and he said you know you'll never succeed without me and i'm telling you mm. i knew i'd rather just die on the spot than let him see me not succeed so really without that insult the power of that insult I don't think I would have stayed in business very long. I probably would have gone down with everybody else. But it was that insult that gave me a fervor. Like like an animal woman, you know? And uh, that kept me on the straight and narrow, you know?
0: And now I want you to hear a clip from an underdog story from my friend Jamie Kern Lima. This is such a Hail Mary moment where the odds were stacked against her, but she went for it anyway. And, well, I'll just let her tell you what happened.
13: Here's the stressful part is in in TBC Beauty's consignment, which means we had to pay for all of the inventory. So we had to borrow money to uh manufacturers like a hundred and fifty something thousand dollars at retail a product. But if it didn't sell in those 10 minutes, it would get shipped back to us and we wouldn't be paid for it, oh, which meant gosh. we would have gone out of business. So what happened with oh. this defining moment where I'm like, oh my goodness, the whole like future of my company If we're going to stay alive or go bankrupt, it's going to come down to this one 10 minute window. And by the way, if you go live, right, and your 10 minute clock starts ticking down, if you're not doing well, meaning you're not hitting their sales goals by the minute, your time gets cut. So you really get one shot to hit that goal. And what I did is I flew out to QVC a week early before that airing and I sat in this rental car in the QVC parking lot and it's this like massive campus. And I just was freaking out and I just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I just, I remember envisioning like who that person is sitting on the other side of the television. And I would think about all different women across the country and like, you know, whether she was a super busy, like stay at home mom who like forgot that she was beautiful or mattered and like hadn't, hadn't seen someone that was like her on television, like I just, I got to this point where I realized I would rather have her look up on the screen and like see me on there showing my rosacea, showing women that look like her and calling Mm -hmm. them beautiful than like do what everyone else was doing and sell all this product and stand for nothing. Uh And it was a moment where I felt like was the riskiest thing I've ever done. And I remember walking into the studio for that 10-minute segment. And I remember meeting with the host, and I was like freaking out, shaking, sure. and so stressed out. My rosacea was so red, which was great for the TV, but I was so tensed up. And I remember the clock starting at 10 minutes, and it was like 9:59, 958, 957. And my bright red bare face before a shot came up. And I walked over to these models that were all ages and sizes mm-hmm. and skin challenges and I remember when we got to the nine minute mark and the host was like, the deep shade sold out, the medium shade sold out. And I was just like freaking out. And then at the 10 minute mark, the sold out sign came up across the screen and I started crying on television. And then they cut from me. And I remember the producer in my ears like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you going to faint? And then I remember looking over and my um husband came running in the studio and he's like, We're not going bankrupt. Oh, and I was God. like crying. I'm like, real women have spoken. And uh it was this moment where I realized, you know, his people are are buying something they can't even try yet. Yeah. Yeah. But the story I was sharing was a million percent authentic and vulnerable. That's it. That's it. It's like I owned it, even though. The experts told me it wouldn't work, and mm. from that moment on, a lot of things shifted. It turned to we did five shows that year, and 101 the next year, and we oh, 250. Oh my shows god! Year, oh my god! Uh, and I did them all myself for eight years, and because this was 2010 when we launched on QVC,
0: we grew to the biggest beauty brand in QVC history. Here's another empowering story from one of my alumni, Gail Keys Allen. I'm in such awe of what she's accomplished in just a few years, and. She's a prime example of how much we're capable of when we don't let our limiting beliefs dictate
14: our destiny. So I have something exciting to tell you. Three weeks in January, so the second, third, and the past week, I made $50,000. I got my W-2 and on my corporate job where I made six figures between January and May when I quit last year, I made $41,000 and I made $50,000. Really, in about 10 days. This is the other thing. I didn't launch a thing. How crazy is that, right? I was sick in November and December. I had bronchitis. I had a sinus infection. I was having all the things. So I didn't hardly make any money. And I still knew that it was coming. I just held on to my belief that it was coming. I didn't worry about getting a job. And for all of you, I'm single. I'm divorced. I have no husband, no other income here. It's just me. So all the people that think they can't quit their job because there's nobody, no other income, it's just me. Me and Guy, we're doing the work. And I did a free one-week masterclass, kind of like you do your challenges. Kathy, no notes, no nothing. Me and the whiteboard, right? People were signing up. And then I gave my, my current clients opportunity to re-sign at my lower price. I want everybody to know I started out at 3K for six months. Then I went to 5K for six months. And now I charge 10K for six months and I help women make money without a freaking job, mostly through becoming coaches. So either entry-level coaches or women that want to be coaches, you do not need a certification. I will hold your hand and show you the way. You do not need a certification. I made 50000 without launching. Like, no sales page. This is the other thing I tell people. You don't need a freaking website. You don't need a freaking LLC. You don't need a sales page. You need nothing but yourself. Nothing but yourself. I'm in the middle of writing a business book called Newpreneur. I made that up. I work with new entrepreneurs. I'm relaunching my podcast, the Newpreneur podcast. What? See, Kathy, Kathy interacted with me. So she knows I'm a different, my whole energy is, I'm on fire. You know what? I said one day, I feel like I'm, I'm like living the dream and it has nothing to do with money and that's it. Yeah. And no, I mean, nobody can give that to me. A paycheck couldn't give that to me. And, and the other piece I want people to know, which I had told you in that hot seat is, my daughter was born three months early, two yeah. pounds, one ounce. I had a brain tumor. I, In fact, I had three major surgeries in one year, a brain tumor, back surgery, and my thyroid removed. And then about nine months later, I found out my my ex-husband, we were together 24 years, found out he had a girlfriend and a whole secret life. So I've, I've started my life over again at around 50. So it's just a testament to what's possible. And in between, my youngest brother died of brain cancer. My mom died. My dad died. My, my, my grandson has a disability. He's two years old and was born. One of his arms is shorter than the other. It's not fully formed. And we are happy up in this house, and it has nothing to do with with money. My grandson is the happiest little person you can imagine. Nothing to do with money. This is bigger than money. The money is amazing. Yes, but it has nothing to do with money. And uh, Kathy, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. If you had not said do it messy, you, you can't even imagine how many times I've said that to people. I'm just going to do it messy. People have criticized me when I make a spelling mistake. Oh, you shouldn't put your business out there. Don't tell people how much money you make. I mean, I've heard it all. Even my best friend doesn't talk to me anymore. And I've been friends with her since I was 19. But you know what? How many people's lives am I affecting by just showing up and telling my story?
0: Okay, now here's a powerful metaphor from Marianne Williamson.
15: I've repeated this so many times. The Course says, you are like a sunbeam thinking you are separate from other sunbeams. You're like a wave in the ocean thinking you're separate from other waves. But there's actually no place where one sunbeam stops and another sunbeam starts. There really is no spot where one wave stops and another wave begins. What we have is the thought that we are separate from that, which in fact, cannot be separate from us. Now think of the different psychological and emotional orientation, depending whether I think of myself as one wave separated from all the other waves in the ocean versus my experience of myself, others, and life itself. If I think of myself as a wave that is connected to every other wave. Yeah. So if I think of myself as a wave, a little wave in this huge ocean, separate from all the other waves, how can I not live in constant terror that I will be obliterated by another wave? How can I not live in constant terror that I will be annihilated on some level by the hugeness of the ocean? Now, the other possibility, that which arises from truth, is There's no place where I stop and it starts. I'm part of this ocean. I move, it moves. It moves, I move. I'm part of this whole thing. I'm huge. The power of the ocean is in me. And I'm part of the power of the ocean. And there's nothing to fear in the ocean. It is my identity. And let's listen to the ultimate spiritual teachers,
0: Mr. Deepak Chopra. It was such a dream come true to have him on the show. And I love what he said about abundance and purpose. I remember hearing you say in a meditation, look outside, look into the Amazon. It's all abundance. And one of the made-up limiting beliefs is there's not enough. How can you help people reframe so that they actually see the world as it is, which is abundant?
16: If you know yourself, when you look at nature, every seed is the promise of thousands of parts. One seed has the promise of thousands of parts. right? Um, When you were conceived, there were 300 million sperm for that one egg. And one of them made it, and that's you but you see abundance wherever you look in nature and uh, you know uh, a human baby has 50 trillion cells or more every cell is doing trillions of things at the same time a human body can regulate itself it can make antibodies it can make hormones it can think thoughts it can play a piano and make a baby all at the same time. That is abundance. Okay. How does it do that? Though it's the biggest mystery that, you know, you have 50 trillion cells, which is more than all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And they are doing in new, in fact, if you had to count the number of things per second that every cell is doing, you wouldn't be able to do it in a lifetime. There's no algorithm for that. And yet, every human being is an expression of that. And while your body is self-regulating, it's tracking the movement of stars and planets because your biological rhythms are the symphony of the whole universe. Circadian rhythms, uh, biological rhythms, gravitational rhythms. It's the ultimate example of the abundance of the entire universe in every cell of your body.
0: It's unbelievable what you just said. And, you know, Einstein is famous for saying that yeah. so much of what we think is reality is an illusion, although he say, he says, albeit very persistent. And it's so the opposite, right, of what you, you just said. It's this ego's definition of like this separation. Yeah. We're each separate from each other. Yeah, You're one of the most loving beings in the world and one of the brightest.
16: And, uh, you, so
0: I want to ask so you this it, question. I say on my show something I also learned in Jerusalem, which was this idea that the opposite of depression is not a sense of happiness, but it's this it's this purpose feeling. And it was an idea that I had heard that I liked. And so often people come to me and the reason that they're seeking and listening is they want to know that there's a purpose to their life. What do you think that that is?
16: A ultimate purpose in life is to know who you are. That's it. Nobody knows who they are. Say, are you a body? Well, which one? Fertilized eggs, zygote, which one? You don't have a body. It's an activity, perceptual activity. Then some people say, I'm my mind. So which one? You had a different mind when you were a teenager. Others say, I'm my personality. Well, hopefully that is evolving. Unless you want to, <laughs> get, unless you want to run for president, then you can freeze your personality at eight years of emotional development. So who are you? This is the most important question. Who you are is the infinite pretending to be a person. And that is the most joyous thing that can be experienced.
0: And now I want to share a piece from one of our most popular episodes, What They Don't Teach You in School. And for a little behind the scenes, we had to scramble that morning to put up the episode, but the gift was that I had no time to overthink it. And oftentimes when you speak from the heart, so many gems come out. Take a listen. Maybe the creator of the universe ultimately created all these incredible things for us to enjoy. And we're the ones that keep ourselves from them by saying, I don't really deserve it. It's okay. I don't really want for that. I'll just have this. I'll just have this little tiny piece. It's enough for me. And really, there's like this hose that's on full blast, but we just, we just walk up with like a little thimble and we fill up a thimble when really you could fill up a bucket or you could fill up an ocean. And it's okay. And you don't have to apologize for it. And you don't have to rationalize it. You could just have it because it's been created for you to enjoy. And then use these incredible resources, whatever you're being given, whatever you can expand to receive You can then use that to fuel you to give to the world. You can spin that into things where now that energy helps you to create that business that helps you to create beautiful art or helps you to create opportunities for other people or speak to other people. You can use all that and then look what one person can do. And the truth is there are so many people who when they have it, they can do so much good with it. And I hope one of the things that they do is just inspire you that it's okay to want for things It's okay to not be perfect. That your scars and your vulnerability actually make you even more of a candidate to be good at whatever you're doing. And that you do deserve it. And that you should put your shoulders back and take your seat at the table and stop apologizing and go ahead and go for it. Well, can you believe that it's been 800 episodes? I really can't. And I can't thank you enough. Thank you for being so loving. Thank you for being so supportive. Thank you for being the kindest group of human beings around for everything. Thank you. It's been such an honor and a joy to get to know you and connect with you. And we're going to be releasing a part two of this because there were just so many good moments that we wanted to make sure we showcase some more. So stay tuned and uh, make sure that you follow us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you're listening because we have so many good episodes coming up. And if you want to be entered into this epic giveaway to celebrate the 800th episode, then leave a review or a rating on the podcast, And go to my Instagram at kathy.heller for the rest of the details. If you can think of one person you know who would get some value from any of these episodes, please share the link, please tell them about this. And finally, if you wanna join me, I'm doing a free three-day workshop. It's gonna be all about how you can turn your passion into prosperity, how you can get paid to do what you love. We're so excited about it. And it starts October 23rd. It's gonna be free. It's gonna be three live days with me go to kathyheller.com slash passion. I can't wait to join you in that. Thank you again for allowing us to get to this place of 800 magical episodes. I can't even put into words how much I've learned, how much I've grown from this experience, which wouldn't be possible without you. Here's to everything else to come. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you again soon.